Hello, and welcome to the Data-Driven Marketing Leader podcast, brought to you by Notch. I'm your host, Andrew Bolton, Chief Customer Officer at Notch, and along with Anda Ganska, CEO of Notch, we'll be diving deep into the world of data-driven marketing and exploring how marketers can contribute to business growth at every stage of the customer journey. In each episode, we'll be joined by industry experts, thought leaders, and marketing innovators to discuss insights, strategies, and best practices. So don't forget to hit that subscribe button to stay up to date with the latest episodes. To learn more about Notch, you can visit notch.com. That's K-N-O-T-C-H.com. Now, let's get started with today's episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another great episode of the Data-Driven CMO podcast. I'm joined here today by JJ, who is a really incredible CMO who's worked in both the cybersecurity space as well as the analytics space and also has advised a ton of companies as part of her role at Andreessen, as well as the consulting agency Play Bigger, which was all about uh, category creation. So I'm super excited to talk to her today. Uh, I know she's going to have a lot of wisdom for everyone listening, whether you're an entrepreneur or a content leader or a CMO. So JJ, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Of course. I'd love to start with a bit of a personal background. I find that most people's journey into becoming a marketer is not because they decided to become a marketer. Some people do. Maybe you're one of them. But I'm curious, how did you end up becoming a marketer? Yeah. So I did nothing that had anything to do with marketing when I left college. I was a financial consultant in healthcare. So it couldn't <laughs> actually be furthest from technology marketing, what I did uh, for the first few years outside of school. I was living in San Francisco. I live in New York now, but I was I spent a couple decades in the Bay Area and everyone around me was jumping on the dot-com bandwagon. It was in the late 90s and I felt like I was missing out on something. So I jumped in. I was a little bit late to the party. So it was right when the dot-com bust, right before the bust actually happened. And so great I did, uh, yeah, great timing. I did what everyone did and I went back to school and got my MBA. And then that was when I made my pivot into technology and in marketing. So I was in so the when you, So when you went from financial consultant to initially into kind of the dot-com, what was that move? What job did you take? So I went to a dot-com called fatbrain.com. For any of you who were- Literally fatbrain? Fatbrain, like F-A-T-B-R-A-I-N. It was a technical book, online book company. So for nice. those who are like, who remember they're diehards, like there was like a cult following- And it was like all of the like technical coding, computer engineering books like you couldn't find anywhere. It was like for the computer programmer book lover. And actually it was right when Amazon was first starting. Remember when Amazon was only books. And so we were kind of like a niche to Amazon, but we were more of like the kind of the the technical book side. And then we wound up getting acquired by barnesandnoble.com. So it was when Barnes and Noble was and Amazon were kind of battling each other out. It just, that feels like literally a, a lifetime ago for many reasons. So I, that's what I, I actually was in a sales, more of a sales role there than a marketing role. And that Fatbrain was trying to get into the education market. And so they wanted to go and find people who could like forge partnerships with technical universities, like technical vocational schools. And so I was actually a pretty good salesperson. And so I had basically most of the United States and I signed on a bunch of technical university systems. And I was pretty good at it. And then Barnes & Noble bought them. And it's funny because they offered me a job to move to New York then and I didn't take it, but here I am now. (laughs) So everything, there's a time and a place for timing is everything, I guess. 
Um, Life is interesting. Yes, it is. Quick, yeah, quick so I, question, yeah. by the way, to the side. Do you think that market, like as a marketer, you benefited from being in sales for a period of time? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, that was very different than enterprise software sales that I'm in now right. or marketing. But I think carrying a quota and mm-hmm. understanding that and understanding the pressure that every person that does carry a quota has and takes on, I think is really important. I think it gives you, Uh I mean, obviously it gives you a sense of the sales process and understanding pain, obviously all those things too, being able to communicate a value proposition, to tease out pain, to be solution oriented, not just showing features, but solving problems. I mean, all of those are things that as marketers, we need to do in our positioning and our messaging. But I think actually like doing that for a living and being able to take a customer all the way through a journey and a cycle is super beneficial for any marketer. And again, I always say every job in the company, every function in the company is the hardest for a different reason. Uh And sales is obviously the most difficult because they have a lot of pressure on them and they carry a quota. And like, so I think having that understanding it allows you to kind of spend a day walking in the other person's shoes, so to speak. I think it's really beneficial. Totally. Yeah. That probably, that ship has probably sailed for me now in my career. (laughs) You don't want to go back into sales. (laughs) I'm very aligned with sales. So I do feel like I'm in sales. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. Well, for sure. I think marketers and salespeople in enterprise software literally have to be tied at the hip, but going back. So how did you, so you, you get your MBA And what do you do next? I got an internship at Veritas Software in product marketing. And it was right around the time when Sarbanes-Oxley was just becoming a thing. So Enron, for those who remember back then, like corporate governance, Enron, WorldCom, Sarbanes-Oxley was just like becoming a regulation. HIPAA for healthcare was like, so all of a sudden this this onslaught of regulatory compliance new regulations around what you do with information and data and how you store data and how you secure data and data privacy, just like literally was like, it was overnight. And I was doing in my internship and I was doing a bunch of research on the regulations and the CEO of Veritas was asked to go on, it was CNBC or or one of those, probably CNBC to talk about the regulatory impact on data And I got an urgent call from my boss that said, you have literally 30 minutes to prep him for this interview. I didn't know anything. I mean, not that I didn't know anything. I mean, I didn't know anything about prepping a CEO for an interview. But I knew the intern. Yeah, I knew a lot more than clearly I I did on regulatory compliance. And I knew more about it than like 99.9% of the people in the company because they asked me anyway. I did a great job apparently because... He told my boss to hire me after that, so which was great. So I got my first job in product marketing at Veritas, and then we were acquired by Symantec, and that was kind of my first foray into cyber. Mm. And then I left and went to Mercury, and then became HP, and found my way back to cyber. So I've had kind of a, I'd say, the formative years of my tech product marketing career. I was either in a company getting acquired or in a company acquiring another company. So I was always integrating because you were always integrating your products and your product suites together. And so I was just always in some kind of an integration mode, but that was fun because a lot of it was then, how are you positioning? How are you messaging? How are you bringing the pieces of the portfolio together? Doing sales enablement because you have a lot of new reps that are now able to sell your product, working together, collaboration. So I worked in very large companies that had, I think HP software had it was well over a hundred products in uh-huh. HP. It was probably closer to two or three. And so that was 
the internal marketing aspect was as important as the external marketing because uh-huh. you had to, it was almost like, I called it the product beauty pageant is like all the, like you had to basically, you had to sell to the, the salespeople. Like why should they focus on your product or your suite of products if they have uh-huh. literally a hundred or 200 products in their bag? And so that was another, you know, I think really valuable skill I learned is, is I always tell my team, not in a, and this isn't in a, like a pounding our chest kind of way, but internal marketing is as important. And I think sometimes as marketers, we forget about that because you need uh-huh. to explain to people, not just what you're doing, but why. And, you know, uh-huh. when are exciting that happened, it's not just about telling the outside world. Of course, it's telling about the outside world, but you also need to get people excited internally. And that kind of builds its own flywheel of momentum. So I learned a lot of very valuable skills along the way. Well, um, I love how we sort of came full circle around the kind of sales and marketing integration. You're talking about kind of the internal marketing. Sales is one of the most important stakeholders when you're in a B2B company. But wanted to also ask you about kind of the CFO accountability function, because that's another, I don't know if you're necessarily marketing to them, but I guess you are in a way. So how do you think about that relationship in comparison to sales and all the product and so on and so forth? Yeah. I mean, the thing that I love about marketing is that we're very much a hub organization in the sense that I think we t- we touch every piece of the organization and I don't think there's any strategic initiative that runs through the company that doesn't either run through marketing or marketing doesn't quarterback it. So mm-hmm. we have to have a relationship with every stakeholder group. I'd say with finance, obviously it's about driving pipeline and you know it's not just about managing to a budget, but it's about showing the return on your investment and the yield and driving pipeline and being data driven and being able to show marketing's impact on the business. And I think that's, you know, a great segue probably into the, I'm sure that the spirit of this podcast being that it's called the data-driven CMO, we have to show our value, right? And marketing, I always talk about the evolution of the CMO role and that when the CMO role first was introduced as a C-suite role, a lot of the CMOs that were in those seats came from more brand communications types of roles because that is what CMOs were at that time, were largely brand. And then Marketo happened, right? Uh-huh. In the, was it the early 2010s? Yep. Probably, yeah. Right? And that changed everything, as we know. And for the first time, it was so revolutionary because for the first time, marketers could quantify not just the value of their investment, but the tie to revenue. And uh-huh. so, and that created, in talk about building a category, that created a whole new wave of CMOs that were data-driven revenue marketing CMOs. And so that's why you see a lot of CMOs come from demand generation backgrounds. And then I think something happened in the maybe 10 years later or so, right? Over the last maybe five, seven years, where you started to see more CMOs come from product marketing backgrounds. Mm-hmm. And I've done a lot of work with category designs. People ask me, well, what's like a good profile of a category designer? And look, smart people come from everywhere. So I'm not saying anything. I did come from a product marketing background, but smart marketers come from all different backgrounds. But I think what happened is as companies became, especially enterprise software companies, their portfolios became more complex. There were more products. It wasn't about a single product message anymore. It was about building building a vision and having a story and a narrative that allowed and an ecosystem that helped drive something through that in the market that create that was the, the culmination of multiple products and services. One, it's more complex. So having a product marketing background, you think through you like product marketers just wake up thinking, go to market and positioning and messaging and pre- uh-huh. 
pricing and packaging and how to bring it all together. And architectures are our best friend and all of those things I think helped a lot. And category design too, because I think category design helps give that, provide that container for that bigger story. So I think a lot of, and just being close to the product and close to the customer. So I think there's a lot of reasons why product marketers, you see a lot of product marketers that are CMOs now. I don't know where it's going. I don't know. AI could change the whole thing. (laughs) Maybe we're all out of a job. I'm so curious to talk about that in a second. But first wanted to ask you about the, going back to the relationship with the CFO and the idea of data, right? Like I think we often talk about how we have to show ROI, but what I've seen a lot across our customers and the conversations we're having is there's a bigger and bigger emphasis placed on money saved. And I think that's probably also where AI starts to really come in and where CFOs are even asking more questions as to how are we employing AI, if at all. So I'm curious how much of kind of the cred that a CMO has with the CFO is based on hey, I've used actually less money than I said I was going to use versus, hey, I've generated all this pipeline for you. You know, our CFO talks about the, like, the best and most efficient use of resources. And so we ha- I'm putting words in his mouth, but I don't think he would tell me you have to save money at all costs. I think what he would say is, if he was sitting right here with me, is you have to use the investments wisely. You have to show me what we're getting for it and you have to show me what we did get for it. But he's not, he's not a CFO. Right. He always says like the CFO is the CFO and he's the opposite of that. He actually is very yes when it comes to investing in the business for growth, but it has to be done the right way and an effective and efficient way. So it's it's really about how do you utilize that investment? And we, you know, talk about it is you have to treat it like it's your own money. In startups, that I mean it's true in every company. Sometimes companies get larger. Sometimes it's easier to say, oh, well, you know, fifteen thousand, twenty thousand, it's okay. And We do not operate that way. Actually, probably I hope no organizations operate that way, but it happens sometimes. But we are absolutely of the mindset of treat it like it's your own money. And I've always been that way. I've spent a lot of time in startups. So I kind of just always have that mentality around me is you have to be very cautious and thoughtful and wise about where you spend it because you don't have an unlimited budget. You obviously have a lot of peers and I'm sure you have friends who do what you do. How many of them percentage-wise do you think work with CFNOs versus CFOs? Oh, I don't know. It's such a good question. I mean... Because I just hear about a lot of CFNOs. That's... that's yeah, you know, I mean, I've been really lucky in my time. Like I've worked with really great CFOs pretty much across the board. And so I haven't really worked with a CFO in my career. I know they're out there. I haven't had. So, I mean, if I'm just looking at my own experience as a, as kind of a proxy, I'd say there's probably fewer CFOs out there than CF yeses, whatever that is. Right. But they do exist. And understandably so, I guess, on some level. Totally, yeah. Yeah. Well, so so kind of thinking through the lens of a CFO when it comes to category creation, right? Category creation takes time and you kind of have to put a pour a bunch of resources into it. And in my opinion, I don't know if you agree, but there's not a ton of leading indicators that you can latch onto to say, yes, we're succeeding or no, we're not succeeding. It just takes a while. And especially if you're trying to build a big category within data or within security. So I'm curious, how did you navigate that? When did you do it? First of all, I know you advise a lot of companies on it, but how did you navigate that? And how do you advise companies navigate that? This is really the, probably the fundamental question of when is category design the right strategy based on where you're at as a company. And 
in my experience, and this is my experience, but I can tell you there is a good product market fit for this use case, which is when you are moving from a single product to a multi-product company, your single product message 99.9% of the time is not big enough to encapsulate like the adjacent market that you are moving into with this new product. So you have to adjust and expand and evolve your story to accompany that. So like, that's a great... People say, well, when do you do it? Moving from single to multi-product, number one use case. And the other piece of this, which actually does go straight back to the CFO, which is if you are looking to go public and you are writing uh-huh. this one, now I know there's not as many companies doing that as there were right. you know, three to five years ago. Maybe may soon. There may be again soon. I mean, that is like, that's where most of my category, my direct category design in being a sitting CMO, that's where a lot of my direct category design experience came from was helping a company build that bigger story and justify the bigger TAM total addressable market that obviously that's what investors, that's one of the big things investors look at when you're going public is does this company, and they're looking at a lot of metrics, but one of them is what's the market size, obviously, right? And so they want to see companies that have a lot of, runway into a really big market. And so the category creation process, like one of the key things that comes out of it is your narrative. Like what is your story? And uh-huh. so you need that. Anyone who's, I mean, you need that period, but anyone who's gone through writing an S1 understands exactly what I mean. It's like you uh-huh. literally have your 50 closest banker and lawyer friends telling you what your story is, writing an S1 as a group exercise. If you don't have that already, it's quite painful. If you don't have that, trying to sit there and figure out like what your story is, is, is tough. So category design actually helps to like get everyone aligned around the narrative. And that narrative, it's telling a bigger vision, right? You have to build into it and grow into it. And so it's a perfect use case for that. So, I mean, that's obviously ties straight into what a CFO would care about. If a company is really doing it because they have a product or and they want to have a bigger message, then I think sometimes that category creation and branding get yeah. a little bit confused. And so, you know, category creation for the sake of category creation is probably not the best strategy. I think what the better strategy is, is you always have to have a point of view and a compelling narrative, period. Uh-huh. So even uh-huh. forget about category design for a minute. Your narrative is the story that you're telling is the most important thing. And if that means that the story you're telling lends itself to a bigger category, then fantastic. But again, if it's category creation for the sake of category creation, then I think it's just putting another acronym out into the market. It's just, it kind of becomes branding and messaging. So I think that's where some companies get a little bit tripped up. On it. I like that distinction. And, you know, to kind of summarize what I heard, I like you kind of said, lean into category creation if you're one going public and you want to just have the bigger story and have control over that narrative when you're kind of sending it out to your bank of friends. And second, if you're going from one product company to a second or multiple product company, that's when maybe the category creation story is kind of a bigger wave that or tide that lifts kind of all all the boats. I like that. I I think it's a good framework to think about it versus just using it because, you know, you feel like there's not enough people interested in your, in your product. Yep. And that's just probably a different story. Well, that's a dangerous place to be as the CMO, because if the CEO like thinks that a CMO is going to come in and build a category and it's like this magic pill or silver bullet to like all of a sudden every 
problem is going to be solved and everyone right. is and the planet is going to know about the company and there's going to be demand coming inbound and the lines around the corner and all of that like that's a very dangerous place to be in because oh, like- too much expectation being put on the CMO and the category whereas it is a growth strategy and I mean any company that's successfully built a category the category and the company and the product all kind of have to work in concert. Like they're seeing some revolutionary, and it's typically revolutionary, not evolutionary. They're seeing some revolutionary problem that hasn't been solved and they're creating an amazing product. Like think of any category creator. They have killer products. They have a great brand. They have a category that they created because there was some big like shift happening and then they were able to like get perfect product market fit. And that doesn't always happen like that. Mm. Mm. company can be that the apples of the world, right? Uh-huh. So I know everyone is, you know, aspires to be that and that's wonderful, but category design is not for everyone. Totally. No, I like that. Let's go one level deeper into actual marketing talk and speak about storytelling a little bit. And this is where I want to just find out a bit more about how you've structured your team at CrowdStrike or just in general in the past when it comes to storytelling and content, which is something that's very close to our hearts at Notch, but then also kind of data and growth and how it all ties together. And we can talk about this as a second, but if if you want to answer it kind of all in one, feel free. But like, you know, AI, one of the big use cases for AI is, is storytelling. So I'm curious how, if at all, you're integrating it and from a marketing perspective, not from a kind of product perspective. Sure. So in general, I think about the world as air war and ground war. So air war of marketing, that's how I think about marketing. The air war is really like, how are you effectively owning the air? What's that big narrative, that big story that you're telling in the market? How are you using that to help influence and move key stakeholders? Now that could be customers, that could be partners, that could be investors, that could be your employees. I mean, all those are key stakeholders. Things that go in the air war so that's really about like the market creation side, uh-huh. um, PR, editorial content, social media, our big global events, like our user conference, analyst relations, all those are things that I would put as part of the air war, so to speak. Then the ground war is really about how do you take that interest you've created and how do you convert that into demand? And uh-huh. that's really more of where... I put product marketing, portfolio marketing, growth marketing, field marketing, partner marketing, customer marketing. So how do you like take that and actually use it to go campaigns to actually drive drive it from awareness at top of funnel all the way through to demand, whether it's new logo or all the way through to expansion. So we have a platform that has 23 products on it. So new logo is clearly a, will always be a growth factor for us because there's literally hundreds of millions of companies on the planet that all need cybersecurity. But when they become a customer, we have many paths for them to expand and continue to evolve on our platform. So that's also part of our, our story. So all of those things have to come together. Like it's a nice way to organize it because you can think about, okay, what are we doing from an air war strategy? And then how are we translating that down to ground? But they can't be disconnected. Otherwise you have a team over here that's thinking about doing the brand and the PR side of things. And then you have another team that is running all the demand gen programs. They have to obviously be tied together. So that's really the key. And I think that's a key role that the CMO has to play is helping to create those linkages. I'm a big fan of customer journeys and buyer's journeys because you can actually see how 
the air war is kind of more of the creating the awareness and then how that actually links back into like go to take you through a journey. So I think that's a nice, that's a nice framing to kind of bring it all together. As we know, marketing is kind of one big machine and it all has to work together. And I I know it's really easy to sit there and say that, especially when, you know, we're almost 3 billion in, in ARR. So it's a pretty big complex machine, but it all has to work together. And then to answer your question on AI, it's funny. I asked some of my leaders, actually, I didn't ask them. I kind of waited at first to see who was naturally going to gravitate towards it. I mean, mm-hmm. we know that, that like all the hype on AI and, and it's not hype. Look, it's, it's kind of the, the it, we're in the hype cycle right now, but AI, right. Trans, it's going to trans- right. revolutionize everything we do. Right. So like, let's like, let's just set, yeah. say that uh, to yeah. start it, Right. But I still think we're in this kind of phase right now of like what are all the things that it can do and experimenting with it and all the articles that are written, like everyone loves to talk about all the professions that won't be around because of AI and marketing is typically like usually one or two on that list. So I let my team, I actually was watching my team to see who was leaning in. It's funny. It's just like looking at any technology adoption curve. I have certain teams that are the early adopters and they went in there and they went straight to figure out what are the use cases of using AI. And they went to legal to understand the, you know, huh. the privacy and the, the copyright considerations with it. Like you have those teams and then you have the opposite end of the spectrum of, I think, teams that are kind of burying their head in the sand a little bit around uh-huh. it. And funny enough, those are maybe, or not maybe funny enough, those are typically the teams that are probably the most susceptible to getting disrupted by it. Uh-huh. Uh, roles that do generate content. So I did tell my team, I I wanted everyone to, every group to figure out what are a couple of use cases where we can experiment with AI. And I think the teams is all kind of coming back around this, rallying around this, this notion of like, it doesn't replace, but it helps to augment and accelerate. So you can get, have it give you a baseline in which to work from. So you're not trying to start from scratch and you can kind of take something and then put the art on it. So just like the art, the, put the totally, yeah. all of that, right. But it just, it helps you do things faster. Right. And so I think that's where we'll, we'll end up is it's an augmentation and acceleration vehicle, not a, not really an outright replacement. There might be some areas, but I think by and large, you still need humans. The other thing, you know, we ran a Super Bowl ad this year. It was so great. I loved Thank it. You. <laughs> Thank Honestly. you. Thank you. And that was a hundred percent creative concepting. So what AI can't do is it can't yet create a novel concept for something. Like you can ask it to do something. In fact, someone actually said, have it asked uh, ChatGPT to write a Super Bowl ad. It will give you a, a nice brief and it'll give you a logic behind the message and who it's for. And it will give you a basic script. But look, that's not something anyone's going to go write a Super Bowl ad around and you know produce a Super Bowl ad around. So you still need humans. You need that fresh creative thinking. I mean, AI is going back to things that already exist somewhere. Like it's yeah. using a model that's being trained. So there's still a lot of room. I think that creativity and the creative side of marketing will become even more important because of AI, because that's what's going to actually add the human value to it. But I think in general, the role of technology has always been to replace the things that we don't want to do ourselves, to yeah. make us more efficient, to basically free up our time to do the things that we can only do, that we love doing, that we enjoy doing, to have more free time, to become more productive, etc. So I think in general, it kind of seeks to achieve the same purpose. There are certain aspects of it that I think are scary or that need to be not scary. They just need to be thought through more. 
but I completely agree with you that that's kind of the direction it's, it's headed into. I'm excited. I love it. I, yeah. I ask it random things and it, it can be I mean, pretty, I mean, you ask it something and then you're like, there's no way that it's going to give me anything useful. Yeah. Like nine times out of 10, I look, I'm like, that was pretty good. What do you, what questions do you use it the most for? What category I, of questions? I, I mean, I'll have it, I'll have it help me sometimes with positioning. I'll have it help hmm. me with competitive positioning. I'll have it help me with product naming. I'll have yeah. it help I love that. Like writing like, you know, short emails. Like it's just, it can help with such a variety of things. I mean, I know people who I use love that. A different use cases too. Yeah. That's actually a great idea. I've never, I just haven't thought about using it for emails, but that's a great idea because yeah. it's such a time suck to write yeah. like yeah. random emails that say the same thing. Yeah, that's really good. Yeah, I use it for health. I use it to like research things. Like what is the impact of heart rate variability on blah, blah, blah. And how can you increase the blah, blah, blah. And it's great because it actually just goes through all the medical research and brings me the insights that I actually need, which is cool. Yeah. Which is great. Someone was telling me about, so now the, here's the cautionary tale. There's, they call it AI hallucinations when the AI oh, yeah, totally. right yeah. back with bad information. Yeah. Someone was telling me that a couple of lawyers put in, I mean, because like that would be oh, a yeah. use case, right? As you could get cases and that, you know, prior precedent for helping to write yeah. a brief. But the AI, like the results it got back were actually false cases. And they, yep. why they didn't check that is beyond me. Check their yeah. work. But apparently they got in a lot of trouble for this. I haven't read about it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I read the news. It was like two or three weeks ago, a lawyer actually lost like is losing his license because he used GBT and didn't fact check and yeah I actually asked it I was like tell me everything I need to know about the CEO of Notch and it made me a Canadian person like a Canadian entrepreneur with a background in PR I was like what I've never even been to Canada this is so bizarre <laughs> like how I don't understand but you know and so I corrected it I was like please like let it be known she's from Transylvania um, just so that for everyone else who asked that question, it, it is correct. <laughs> See, so clearly um, it was not foolproof yet. So we no, have to go. No. Yeah. But like nothing is, right? Like data isn't full bulletproof. Analytics isn't bulletproof. Marketing isn't bulletproof. Humans aren't bulletproof. And so I think as long as we're adopting it with a bit of like a work in progress mindset, not this like robot killer who has to be perfect or evil or something, you know, I think we'll be in a better place. I agree completely. Final question for you, because I'm really interested in this. It's kind of, you know, compared to all these other topics we've been covering, it's kind of like a boring topic, but I think it's such an important topic, which is websites, like your website, your owned and operated properties. I think a lot of, you know, we talk about the Super Bowl, we talk about all sorts of activations that happen out there in the world. I happen to think that especially for high consideration products, websites are so important because you want to bring people there, you want to loyalize them, et cetera. How do you think about websites and your website currently? I think that websites in general are probably the most important asset that a company has because it's the single place where your entire brand, your story, everything you want to communicate about your company is in this one place. So first of all, it's your, and it's the front door, right? It's not totally. just everything. It's typically, what do you do if you want to learn about a company? You Google them and you go to their website, right? And so... It is the first place people go. So it's their first impression. And we all know that everyone has extreme ADD and they might only sit on a site for seconds. And so yeah. you have this like very short amount of time to bring them in and capture their attention. And so I think that for companies that don't 
spend a lot of time on their website or think of their website as kind of the afterthought. Like everybody needs to shift their thinking because it is extremely important. And I make the analogy to a house. If you are, your website's like your house. And you, so the first thing is you want to have curb appeal, right? Like your homepage, like you want, when people are coming up to your house, they want to see like a nicely uh-huh. cured lawn and uh-huh. landscaping and it should look inviting. Like you want to come in. And then when you walk in the house, all the rooms or different areas of your website, you don't want them to be like old and shabby and dusty with like no decor. You want them to look nice and warm and inviting and people want to sit down and spend some time there. And and also like, when they enter, you kind of want them to see the next room they should go into and not like five doors that yes. look the same. And, uh, and it has a good flow. I mean, it's like, yeah. like you think about it, it's like it's such a perfect analogy is, is yeah. your, yeah, it is. your house and it's always a work in progress. So for us, we're always like, there's always areas under construction, so to speak speak and, and under design that we're looking at either from a design perspective or a usability perspective or, you know, a messaging perspective. And so it's never done. It's never perfect and it's never done, but it's very important. I completely agree. I'm glad that you reiterated that because I feel like a lot of people spend too much time thinking about the outside and not enough about where they're capturing all the buzz that they're creating. So I'm happy that we managed to get that message across. Yep. Thank you. This was so much wisdom and so much fun to get through all these complicated, hairy topics. I really appreciate the time and the advice you shared with us today. Thank you. This was so much fun. Thank you so much. Of course.